Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. While spring is slowly giving way to summer in many parts of the country, with visitors gaining more and more access to the national park system, a standoff in Washington over the country's debt ceiling very likely would greatly disrupt operations in the parks. It was just a decade ago that a federal budget sequestration, that is a forced cut across all federal agencies' budgets as part of the Budget Control Act, led to closed campgrounds, Sunday closures of National Park System units, and 900 permanent positions that went unfilled. For the National Park Service, the sequestration led to a 5% budget cut that also led to a reduction in invasive plant control at the parks, a reduction in maintenance of fences and building repairs, science and research activities, and natural resource monitoring. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at the National Parks Traveler. In Washington today, House Republicans want to see some pretty stiff budget cuts in return for agreeing to raise the debt ceiling. According to the New York Times, one outcome, if the funding caps proposal put forth by the Republicans is approved, would be a 51% reduction in the Interior Department's budget. How devastating might that be to the National Park Service and the National Park System? We're going to explore that question with Mike Murray, Chair of the Coalition to Protect America's National Parks, and John Garter, Senior Director of Budget and Appropriations at the National Parks Conservation Association. We'll be back in a minute with Mike and John. The Everglades Foundation, the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at evergladesfoundation.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. See their successes at gtnpf.org. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smokey's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokiesinformation.org. Welcome back to The Traveler, gentlemen. Thank you. Thanks for having us. So to set the stage for today's conversation, no one knows exactly what might happen if the debt ceiling isn't increased, other than that there would be some economic chaos in the United States and across the globe. I've been told by various folks that that won't happen, that an agreement will be reached at the 11th hour to avert such a disaster. But we also don't know if the ongoing negotiations between House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and President Joe Biden will produce some sort of compromise that will include some cuts in already approved discretionary spending that runs the national parks. What are you guys hearing? John, you've been up on the Hill in Washington. What have your sources told you about the ongoing negotiations? Well, Kurt, I don't, I don't know that anyone really 
even including the principals, knows how this is going to play out. Um, I, if there's one area, well, there is one area of agreement uh, between them that they don't want a catastrophic default. Um, that would, I think, I don't think there's an economist out there who wouldn't agree that that could lead to economic calamity. But the fear for us is that uh, the longer this goes, it doesn't just threaten the economic well-being of of America, but um, the threat of cuts, as you point out, we we did see this play out uh, a decade ago in 2011, and the results were uh, deeply damaging for the National Park Service. 2013, so, wasn't it? Well, it was the it, yes and yes. It was the 2011 Budget Control Act that then led to a government shutdown, and then that eventually led to a uh, sequester that, uh, as you point out, um, harmed the Park Service and had had a number of impacts to parks, but also threatened the economic well-being of surrounding communities as the Park Service saw um, compromised visitor services. Now, Mike, you were a superintendent back in 2013 when the budget sequestration took hold, I believe, and that was a 5% budget cut. Can you address how a 51% cut might impact the park service and the parks if it came to that? Uh, just a, a minor point of fact, I had retired by 2013, but I certainly, during my career, experienced shutdowns and budget cuts and those kinds of things, so I can speak from experience about that. Even a relatively small budget cut based on the long-term trend of increasing visitation, erosion of budget purchasing power in terms of employees, so full-time equivalents or FTEs. All the data I've seen comparing 10 years ago versus recent budgets is that the Park Service lost up to 3,000 full-time equivalents, which is that's one position for a whole year. So if it's a full-time employee, that's one one employee for a year. And at the same time, park visitation has increased dramatically. Now, if I can relate that to the potential for the debt ceiling breach, everything I've read and understand about potential debt ceiling breaches, it's not the same as a budget cut. It's not the same as a government shutdown. Uh, it's really kind of a broader economic event that will cause a ripple effect, and it's the ripple effect that may eventually impact parks. Um, so if a debt ceiling breach occurs, uh, park service employees would not be sent home. Uh, parks would continue to operate, et cetera. There would be, obviously, potential ripple effects, and that could be how Congress deals with it. Would that be leverage for one side of Congress to cut budgets the next, next fiscal year, and that clearly would have an impact. I can tell you that according to the Secretary's uh, recent statement to the House Appropriations Committee, the current Republican proposed budget would result in budget cuts to the Department of Interior. And based on the funding cap in that proposal, the extent of the cuts would depend on whether the cuts are equally distributed between defense and non-defense agencies. If it's equally distributed, then Interior would experience a 4% cut. If the reductions are distributed only to non-defense agencies like the Park Service and Department of Interior, then the effect on the department and thus on the Park Service would be about a 22% cut. 
You know, I'm wondering about that because the the New York Times just had an analysis the other week um, that said that if the the spending cuts were um, if defense, veterans health, and border security were not impacted by the budget cuts, that interior would be hit with a fifty one percent cut. And you know that's that's part of the problem we're dealing with here is there's so many numbers being tossed out there. And um, yeah, I know the breaking the the debt ceiling um, would have different impacts on the government, but as opposed to what the House Republicans are saying, let's let's go back to fiscal twenty. 22 um, funding levels, and that would have a, a pretty drastic impact on the parks. No, John? Yeah, I could speak to that. So the Limit Save Grow Act um, proposes just an overall budget cap for this next year and then for the ensuing years. Um, it does not get into the weeds on what each subcommittee would get in the each appropriation subcommittee. Uh, the, the expectation based on a number of statements is that defense appropriations would be held harmless and even get an increase. Uh, military construction and VA, as well as Homeland Security. According to that article, the secretary's speculation or the calculations that she got from the Park Service and other interior agencies was that uh, defense and some of these other things would be held harmless, but I don't believe included VA. And so, at least according to that article, once you add VA in, the secretary's projection of a 22% cut then turns into, I think, a 51% cut. Either way, it's it's unrealistic and uh, would be extremely difficult to get something like that to become law. What we expect is to start seeing appropriations bills <clears throat> that are built on that budget coming up here in the coming weeks. Assuming that those other areas of spending are held harmless, we we expect to see uh, an interior and environmental appropriations bill probably early next month that will include some deep cuts. Chairman Mike Simpson, who is a friend of Parks, um, who has always treated Parks well as, as chairman and ranking member formerly of the subcommittee, I think would like to fund parks and other things better, but he is going to be given an impossible and unrealistic task to meet some of their obligations to tribes and otherwise. And then what they have left is is so absurdly small, they'll just have to slash and burn things like the park service. It would be um, hard to imagine. Otherwise, again, that's not his intention and doesn't reflect his beliefs, but that is the kind of thing that you see from this broken budget process. What we saw in 2013, well, step back for a moment, um, as Mike and other current and former superintendents can tell you, superintendents are forced to take a scalpel to their budgets on a regular basis when they are not able to meet fixed costs or given insufficient increases or even uh, minor cuts to their budgets. What we saw in 2013 was more superintendents having to take a carving knife to their budgets. Um, 2000, almost 2,000 fewer staffs, fewer staff, and some of the impacts that you mentioned that we saw with areas of parks opening later, visitor centers closed or reducing their hours, plowing starting later in the year, and accessibility to campgrounds and other things that impacted the functionality of national parks. Cuts have 
this magnitude would be more like a hatchet or an axe and would involve an unprecedented exercise of superintendents making enormous cuts to their budget. And as Mike um, outlined, you know, the secretary did outline some of those things based on a 22% cut, 5,000 fewer staff, and uh, just more dramatic impacts of the kinds of things we saw before, cuts to uh, uh, seasonal hires, which of course are the frontline folks that uh, make sure that you know, the busy season is a, a functional and, and pleasant and inspiring and educational one for park visitors, but also you know, impacts to law enforcement, impacts to uh, basically everything you could imagine in terms of uh, visitor services and resource protection. Mike, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I believe that 85 to 90 percent of a park's budget is tied up in fixed costs, such as you know salaries and benefits and utilities. And so cutting funding levels back to FY22 amounts would require some pretty drastic cuts, as John was alluding to, using a hatchet as opposed to a, a scalpel. And those are the, the discretionary funds, I believe, that are used to hire the seasonal workers, to cut the grass, to staff the visitor centers, collect the garbage, do trail maintenance and more. Is that right? Uh, Kurt, you've had a key point. I would explain it slightly differently. Uh, typical park budget of 80 to 85% is dedicated toward long-term or fixed costs, so permanent employee salaries, because those are commitments. Once you hire somebody, they're in the job unless there's an order for a reduction in force. So you can't, without some special authority or direction, remove a whole lot of permanent employees from their positions. Uh, and other fixed costs could be utilities, rent, those kinds of things. So 15% or so is the pot of money that's used to buy supplies and materials. It's used to hire seasonal employees. And so the greatest flexibility for a superintendent to deal with a reduced budget is in that 15%. So I hate to say it, but the flexibility points in the direction of reducing seasonal staffing, and that's typically what occurs. And if the Park Service as a whole received a significant overall budget increase from past times where that's occurred, we and I can predict that there'd probably be a hiring freeze on new permanent employees. Um, that saves money. If somebody transfers or retires, you just don't fill the position. And those can be something you can get by doing for a while, but it depends. It's kind of luck of the draw who retires or transfers. If you know, a one-of-a-kind employee like an archaeologist in a southwestern park retires and you can't replace it, that, he, that position may be the key person paying attention to archaeological resources, which the park was created to protect. What you typically see if there's reduction in seasonal employees is reduced hours of operation, reduced services, trash doesn't get picked up as often, restrooms don't get clean as often. And I can tell you that superintendents are resourceful at trying to get by in these situations. So it's a lot of little things that they're juggling to try to stay within budget without completely shutting down half the park. Um, I can say I've worked in parks in the past. I was at Yellowstone in the late 90s when there was a shutdown. Different scenario, but kind of the same thing. But um, 
there was also a re reduced budget. And we had a superintendent at the time, Mike Finley, who felt like instead of making a thousand cuts that the public never sees, he closed a couple of campgrounds. And the explanation was we don't have the funding to operate them. And, and so that it made the impact of the budget reduction more visible. And that requires some uh, intestinal fortitude on the part of a superintendent, not that many would do that. So I, I guess um, going back to your original question, 85% uh, is kind of locked up. It's committed long-term either to permanent employee salaries and or you know, long-term commitments such as leases, utilities, things like that. And unfortunately, again, primary flexibility for saving money is reduce the number of seasonal employees. And in my mind, seasonal employees, particularly in the parks that have the three or four month peak season, which is coming up, most parks are busy during the summer. And at some point, if you had to significantly reduce seasonal employees during the peak season, park resources would be at risk because of lack of patrols and protection, park visitor experience would deteriorate, reduce visitor center hours, reduce campground opportunities, reduced interpretive programs, reduced maintenance. So it's it's kind of a war of attrition and it just depends on how big the cuts are, but that's kind of what options are available to a superintendent to deal with a reduced budget. Kind of tough to take, uh, I mean, if it became a 51% budget reduction out of 15% of a park's budget. That would be catastrophic. I think you would see parks closing large sections or facilities within a park. <clears throat> There'd be minimal seasonal hiring. That definitely would be hiring freeze on permanent employees. I have read in the past where with certain circumstances, they can extend furloughs to subject to furlough permanent employees who already have a period each year where they're off duty without pay for a few months. And then apparently there's an authority that would allow the agency to impose furloughs on full-time permanent employees. So they would start furloughing people that never get furloughed if they had to save that kind of money. We're talking today with uh, Mike Murray of the Coalition to Protect America's National Parks and John Garter from the National Parks Conservation Association about uh, the looming debt ceiling crisis and um, what type of impacts that might have on the Park Service depending on how it's resolved. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. Do you work or volunteer for the National Park Service? Are you retired from the Department of the Interior? Learn how you could earn $250 by joining Interior Federal Credit Union and opening up a new credit card. Visit their website for membership details and how to join. Federally insured by NCUA. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. You can show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. 
It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people, inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference too at friendsofacadia.org. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Potrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with the breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com. P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. Okay, we're back with uh, John and Mike uh, talking about the um, looming debt ceiling crisis. Um, John, anything to add to what Mike was saying before the break? Well, I was talking about the uh, bill that we expect to see from the House. And, you know, we've talked about how something like a 50% cut is just completely unrealistic. I I think that is more of um, an intellectual exercise and something that is, is very hard to fathom could actually become reality. If the bill actually cut parks and other things as deeply as, as is expected, it's hard to imagine that bill could actually get the votes to pass in the House. There are members of Congress on both sides of the aisle who recognize the importance of national park funding. And I think in part due to the advocacy that we and others would do, would understand that that is not uh, realistic. It's it's like Harrison Ford said uh, to George Lucas when uh, he gave him a script with some things that were unrealistic. He said, you know, George, you can put these things on paper. It doesn't mean I'm gonna say them. And so, if that bill doesn't pass the House or if by some unexpected reason it does pass the House, it would never go through the Senate. And, and what this leads to is the threat of a continuing resolution or um, or more modest cuts, either of which would be bad for the National Park Service. We talked about, Mike talked about the uh, fixed costs. A continuing resolution would mean the Park Service would have to absorb roughly $125 million in cuts. And that would mean having to not fill more staff positions and just going back on the progress that uh, thanks to bipartisan support in Congress was made in FY23. So even a flat budget, which is a very realistic possibility, would be damaging to the Park Service. Never mind if there's agreement on something that leads to a two, three, four, five percent cut, which for the Park Service is a lot bigger than it sounds. You know, I'm, I'm wondering, um, Mike, hopefully you can give us some insights. National Park Service staff in Washington would not tell me whether they are preparing for a worst-case scenario or whether they're preparing for any scenarios. Um, now, from your experience as a superintendent, any thoughts on the conversations that are being held among those at the top of the Park Service and Interior? Um, I, I will say I have no 
current inside information about what's being discussed. But there are discussions, aren't there? Uh, there undoubtedly are preparations going on. There have been enough. Again, a shutdown is different than sequestration, which is different than a debt ceiling breach. But the implication of the Park Service being imposed upon by a reduced budget, every park likely has some kind of contingency plan, or at least they have one from the last time. <laughs> there was one of these episodes, so I don't know if they'd be given instruction, but if I were still working, I would probably pull out my park's contingency plan from the last time, you know, which prioritizes or identifies where you can save money. But I kind of ran down the generic options, lapse or don't fill in, put a hiring freeze on filling any vacant permanent positions. That's kind of random in its occurrence. You can't predict how much money that's going to save you, but it'll save you something. You're going to have to take a hard look at number of seasonal employees. You know, if you have long-term contracts for services or goods or heating fuel or whatever it may be, you may have commitments you can't really back away from. So looking at more short-term financial commitments, uh, I can tell you parks I've worked in because the busiest, most expensive quarter of the year is the fourth quarter. You don't spend all your money on supplies and materials the first three quarters. You buy what you need to get through the summer. And then hopefully if you have some money remaining in the fall in September, it's called end of the year spending, end of the fiscal year. So some parks try to get ahead on their supplies and materials if they have money left. Well, they aren't going to have money left if there's a significant cut. So again, I can't tell you for sure whether there's been formal discussions. There has to have been. Uh, there probably between agency um, budget managers and OMB, at some point parks would receive written instructions of what to do. That would include some of those contingency I said, but I think back in 2013, parks had plans that identified where they would save the money needed. So that's sort of the behind the scenes process, but I, I can't tell you where it stands at the moment. But if there truly is a budget cut, there will be instructions from above, probably OMB to the agencies, agencies to their field managers of where and how to save money and how to prioritize savings. You know, back in, in 2013, then Park Service Director John Jarvis had sent out a memorandum um, to park superintendents and field staff about what a 5% across the board cut would do to the parks. Um, the traveler was able to obtain that, that memo um, that was internally sent around. I've been told by a park superintendent that they have heard nothing from Washington, which seems kind of surprising to me. You know, back in 2013, we heard from both then Interior Secretary Ken Salazar and National Park Service Director John Jarvis, as I mentioned, they held a conference call with the media to outline the potential impacts to the parks. On that call, Secretary Salazar said, this department faces a perfect storm of impact because we do so much in the summer months 
which is so important to tourism here in this country. So for us, when you're looking at this level of cuts, it means impacts to visitors, our ability to fight fires, our ability to do the maintenance and education and support the hunting and fishing world, which is so much a part of our economy. During that call, Director Jarvis said that the sequestration would force Great Smoky Mountains National Park to close five campgrounds and picnic areas, the Blue Ridge Parkway would have to close seven contact stations, and Mammoth Cave would have to close a portion of the cave tours because the Park Service wouldn't have the staff to operate those tours, and that could affect hundreds of thousands of visitors, he said. Does it surprise you that we haven't heard from Interior Secretary Halland or Park Service Director Sams that, you know, that they're not taking a similar approach to inform the public about the impacts they could expect um, if the debt ceiling isn't raised or if you know, one of these House Republican proposals is implemented? Because after all, angry constituents can sway politicians more easily than uh, lobbying can, no? I would say it's, it's not too much of a surprise. This this situation has um, certainly a similar flavor to what we saw with the 2011 impasse, um, but there are various chapters. Back then, as you point out, they were doing that exercise, and I think the uh, letter from Secretary Holland to appropriators uh, is a similar exercise this year. That was spurred not by the administration, but by a, a letter from ranking member DeLauro to um, the various departments asking for their projections. And Secretary Hollins was one of, of numerous letters that came back. That's a hypothetical exercise, again, based on numbers that were being put out at the time. What you reference is a different version of that. I'm not surprised there's not any guidance that we are aware of because it's still early in the process. There are various chapters with this kind of thing. In 2011, we saw the threat of a default, but separately, we saw the Budget Control Act that then led to a congressional super committee that was expected to come to agreement on some big things. Because they couldn't reach agreement due to that law, it set the sequester in place, which was such an uh, indiscriminate and uh, damaging punishment that um, that came from some years prior. We had seen that idea before, but it was so bad, no one expected it to happen. So then we saw the sequester and then we saw a shutdown, of course, and then we eventually saw a budget deal. Those are numerous chapters, but then after that, we even saw a series of biannual budget deals until the recent expiration of the Budget Control Act. In this case, we need to see how this plays out and uh, what it could actually mean for cuts. At that point, I would expect and, and hope that if there is the potential for cuts that we would see um, some similar projections from the Park Service, from Interior, and from others. And then eventually, if it came down to it, uh, we would see a contingency plan for a shutdown or for various cuts, as Mike was discussing. But in short, I think it's, it's premature for that because we just don't know how this is going to play out yet. Well, I mean, you hear in the news this morning that... Uh you could hit that debt ceiling in three weeks, June 1st. Well, that that's different, but as, as Mike said, related. Um, economists agree on, on, in general, from what I've read, on, on the kinds of things that would happen. One could speculate on what that could mean for parks. It would reduce consumer confidence and lead to job losses that would affect 
park adjacent communities. It would affect the ability and desire of Americans to travel to national parks. That would impact park fee revenue. That would impact the recreational and tourism economies. Um, so there would certainly be impacts there. But that's more of a debt ceiling thing than what is being uh, tied to it by the GOP, which is the argument that that cuts need to be combined with it. And, and that's really more what we're concerned about. And the part that we're discussing is that other half. Bert, if I could add, I agree with what John says, and I think he explained it well, but for me, it helps just to remember that 2013 sequester was a different scenario than the current debt ceiling potential breach. Everything I've read about the debt ceiling breach is there's not any immediate impact on government operations. Employees aren't sent home, parks aren't closed, et cetera, et cetera. It's more of a lagging effect. Now, if a debt ceiling breach ends up in budget cuts next fiscal year or sequestration that reduces money to et cetera, et cetera, there's going to be a secondary effect, no doubt, beyond just global economy and lack of faith in the U.S. credit, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, eventually, that's going to trickle down to budget cuts, I think. But I'm not an economist, so I can't predict when that would occur. So anyway, I, I think the preparation for 2013, the situation was different. It was more clear what the extent of reduced budgets would be under the sequester uh, versus now. It's Honestly, I've read a number of articles, GAO reports, uh, Congressional Research Service, a debt ceiling breach has never happened before, and even the experts can't seem to totally agree on what is going to happen if it does occur. You know, curious if if the real worst case scenario set in that you know there was a fifty one percent budget cut across Interior and, and whatever trickled down to the Park Service. I mean, do you do you start picking and choosing which parks you keep open and which ones you close to save money? It's a good question. That's a tough call. It would require someone higher up the chain <laughs> to put relative value on parks, and I'm not sure that's a good idea. Uh, generally, it's going to be every park is expected to reduce their spending by some percentage, at least in a sequestration or sequester the cuts are spread equally among all um, agencies, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, if a 51% cut were to occur, I don't, I can't predict how the park service would try to implement that, but I suspect they would ask most parks to report what would happen if they lost 51% of their budget, which would be catastrophic. I can't imagine that, what that would be like, or, that it could even happen. John, any thinking inside the MPCA hierarchy as to how to respond to this? Is it is it just a wait and see game like you, you were outlining? I, I think that's right. Um, we were um, prepared to do a, a massive public relations campaign as we did um, leading up to and during the sequester of 2013. Uh, now, I think because it's such a speculative ex exercise, we're waiting to see how exactly this plays out. And then 
Um, we will dust off our old playbook from a decade ago and uh, make a lot of noise as we do and as Mike's group and other others do to um, convey to decision makers um, how how deep an impact this is this would have. We've already been doing that, but um, we're keeping our powder dry a little bit. And um, you know, again, this is a speculative exercise. To to your earlier question, I. It's it's hard to imagine what the Park Service would have to do because uh, this has never happened before. I I don't think, just thinking on my feet here, I don't think it would be realistic to say close smaller, less visited parks in order to try to give more resources to the more visited parks. That we're nibbling around the edges in terms of the numbers with that kind of thing, and and it impacts you know, the ability of folks around those parks, smaller historic parks, for example, to enjoy the park experience. That's not a ton of money, relatively speaking. You know, do you, do you close Yellowstone in order to better fund Yosemite? You know, you can imagine that the folks around in West Yellowstone and Gardner and other places would have a field day with that. I don't, you know, think that would be politically realistic. Um, it's, it's, very difficult to fathom what that would mean, but I, I do think we need to to see how this plays out. Is there a way to avoid this type of game that we seem to be playing more and more often as as Congress becomes more and more partisan as opposed to bipartisan? You know, earlier this year, um, John Jarvis and his brother Destry, or late last year rather, um, came out with a, an argument of why the Park Service should be broken out of the Interior Department and a standalone agency somewhat like the Smithsonian Institution. That wouldn't inoculate the agency against these sorts of machinations, would it? I personally don't see how it could. I don't really follow the politics of the Smithsonian, but if you also think of another independent government agency, the U.S. Postal Service. Being independent of a department, I don't think inoculates an agency from politics, you know, partisan points of view about what the agency should do or about how much funding they're given. So personally, it's an interesting intellectual exercise to talk about should the Park Service be independent. I don't know if that's a good idea or not. I don't have a strong opinion about it. You know, during my career, there was frequent times when we worked with other interior agencies collaboratively, and that wouldn't necessarily have to end if the Park Service was no longer in interior. But certainly having sister agencies in the department facilitated those kinds of interactions. And some of them were quite significant regarding, you know, protection of park resources for decades to come. So, um, I think the current situation is way bigger than one department or one agency, and that you know Congress does seem to like to make a distinction between defense agencies and non-defense agencies in terms of their priorities for funding. But other than that, I don't know if there's any advantages one way or the other between where the Park Service is situated. In terms of prevention, it's become a game of political chicken in my mind that I saw in reading some references, I saw some number about the number of times there's been continuing resolutions. And the numbers increased significantly in the last 20 years. 
and you know that's a game of chicken it's like we don't want to raise the budget or we don't want to approve the budget unless we get this and so i don't know how you get around that other than it's in my mind for the greater good it would make sense for both parties to think it's a priority to approve operating budgets for federal agencies and not get into this game of chicken john well MPCA doesn't have a position on decoupling the debt ceiling from appropriations, but I think it's clear that when the two are combined, it leads to threats to funding for parks, EPA, and other things that we care about, and a lot of other non-defense discretionary spending, as well as, in fact, defense and and other things. Usually, the debt ceiling is lifted without uh, this kind of threat to budgeting. Um, I would say in, in those years, it's hard enough for appropriators to do their, their work with a process that ranges from challenging to even dysfunctional. So I think there is a, a strong argument that the two shouldn't be coupled. Other ideas people have put out there are biannual budgeting there. That idea every so often gets some conversation in Congress and among uh, folks like former Director Jarvis who look at these things and and understand how that could make things easier. But biannual appropriations is just an idea that never seems to go anywhere. Biannual budget deals could be more helpful. We've seen a number of those, as I mentioned, that... um, came out eventually after after the shutdown and it came out of the deal after the shutdown of 2013. Um, that makes things a little easier. In the end, there needs to be a broad bipartisan understanding in Congress that non-defense discretionary spending, including but not limited to the Park Service, is an important contributor to the GDP. It's an important contributor to Americans' lives and well-being. It's an essential part of our economy. And this political brinkmanship where the threat of deep cuts becomes something that we start discussing uh, in forums like this, are it's just not a place we should be going. We'll leave it there, gentlemen. I appreciate your thoughts. Um, it'll be interesting to see what uh, the coming weeks bring in terms of negotiations and um, where the Park Service ends up going into the busy summer season. Thanks for your time. Thank you, Kurt. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. We'll be watching the negotiations in Washington over the debt ceiling and how they might impact the parks, and we'll keep you apprised. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. 
National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.